John and Missy, thanks for really super encouraging and, and the super challenging both, wasn't that? Hmm? Hmm? Um, it's interesting, as Missy was talking, I was reflecting on my life and how fear has played a such an interesting role in my journey at different steps along the way. There are some times when I've been called where I've been absolutely fearless. Like, just get in your face and, you know, I don't care. And I, that's the way I was. I never, when, when I felt the call of Jesus Christ in my life, I really, I lost all my friends in high school. And I didn't care because I had such a sense of that calling. But it's interesting, the last five years of my life, as I just turned 62, I know that's hard to tell, as vibrant and handsome and as amazing as I am. But the last five years, man, it's been a battle with fear. I don't sleep through the night anymore, so I wake up and it's the fear of the night, which a lot of, which Paula always struggled with because she, she never slept well. And, and I would kind of, poo-poo that, you know, because because I was sleeping like a rock. And and Missy is absolutely right, isn't she? We're the most fearful people in the world. And because we're trying to protect, we're trying to control, we're trying to have enough for retirement, we're trying to do all these things, and therefore we're not free to recklessly follow Jesus in this world. And I've never, ever in my life, all the years that I've lived, like when my dad left his medical practice and went to Kenya for a year, I spent a ton of money. You know, what did he say about his life? Like, this was the greatest year of my life. This is the greatest year of our family. That decision changed me. I'm not standing in front of you tonight. We're not friends. He doesn't take that adventure with God. And what I love about what's so appropriate this is you guys are adventurers with God. That's why you're here. That's why you're exposing your kids. That's why you want Jesus Christ to impact the world through your life. You don't want, you're like Missy, you don't want to just roll into heaven and not ever having taken a risk with God or taken an adventure or stepped out. There is nobody in this room, I promise you, Who's going to finish their life and go, you know, I just, gave, I just gave too much of myself away. You know, I just made a big mistake strategically. I gave too much of my money and too much of myself. I am 62, and some, a few of you are older than me. I have never in my life ever heard one person say that. And like you, I have seen thousands weeping because they just frittered their life away. And it was pretty meaningless. And so for us... As we talked last night, we're the vanguard. We're the tip of the spear in terms of saying, let's cast off fear. Let's follow Christ. Let's adventure with him. Let's, as we read Ephesians, realize this glorious manuscript, this glorious letter that he wrote, is our invitation to a life of amazing significance. And what's cool is I know every single person in this room wants this. Like this is what we burn for. We burn for our kids and our grandkids to have that. And we have had 
and we've witnessed, you know, many of you have been here many times, you witnessed how these young staff leaders love your children like nobody, you know. And you'd go, yeah, this is, this is the kind of investment that we want. So I just want to say, I just can't give enough superlatives about what we've experienced here and what our children and grandchildren have experienced. It's just it's beautiful. I did feel a nudge as Johnny and Missy were doing their thing. But I thought, um, so I, I'm just learning later in life. If I feel a nudge from the Holy Spirit, I just know I should do it. So I felt like the nudge was that fear is a stronghold for a lot of us, including me. And um, I really felt like it, this time it would be wise. We, we've prayed over John and Missy. I, I thought it would be wise for them to pray over us, that, we, that some of us would be released from fear. Um, and I thought maybe before we do that, some of you might want to ask a, a direct question to John or Missy about how to face fear or question, any question you might have. You do that. Um, I, I'll give you the next 30 seconds if you want to raise your hand and ask a question. But otherwise, I'd love for us, um, does anybody, as you were hearing that, I just, can I just see a show of hands when she was talking about fear, the fear we had, the fear we lived? How many of you just instantly, overwhelmingly resonated with that like I did? Is there anybody else in the room? So look, it's not everybody, but it's a significant. It's probably 40% of us in the room. And the rest of you, pff, yeah, whatever, nothing bothers me. Whoa. So, no, I love the fact that some of you are like, you're, you're overcoming that. It's interesting. I, I've watched so many of my brothers and sisters of Christ who are like, no, I'm not going to give in to the fear. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really tackle it and live for it. And so you saw that. You saw those hands go up. Uh, do you have the microphone still with you? Tim, take that. Can, we ha can you grab one of those down for, uh, or just grab one on the stage? And um, let's just do that before we just begin, do our teach. And uh, so come on up and just pray. So here's what I'd like to do. Um, if fear for you is a really, let, let's just close our eyes. Go ahead and just close your eyes. We're going to pray. And John and Missy, I'd like for you both just to pray over us. But if, if fear and kind of the control and all of that is a significant issue for you and for, your, for how you're living your life, if you're like me, you've been waking up in the middle of the night and, and letting the fears run rampant in your life and just continues to trying to bring this to the Lord, then you stand up with me, okay, if that's your issue. Because I know fear is an issue, but for some of us, it's a really it's a special thing and uh, I would just love for you to for pray over us, okay? Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, I just, I just want to bring this whole room before you, Lord. Lord, I pray that you put your hand on each and every person in this room. And I am so impressed with this group of people. I know that this group of people has already been touched by you, mm. Lord. I know that there is power and strength in this room. And I know that each and every one of these people are strong warriors with the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. I know that the spiritual world stands in fear of what this room of people are capable of doing by your strength and by your power. And I know that fear is a disease that has infected many people in this room, but I know it's not your intention for them to be infected with fear. 
I know that you do not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, sound mind, and love. I pray that you will give each one of these people the courage to step forward. Every time they feel fear, to step forward. To remember that they don't go to the battle naked. They go with your armor, your strength, your warriors side by side with them. Give them the courage to believe that and to step forward with that knowledge knowing that they have power and that they bring fear to the enemy, which is why he uses it against them. Lord, I pray that in years from now, maybe not even until eternity, all of us in this room will sit down and share incredible stories of what the quietest, most fearful person in this room has done in your name. Because we know, Lord, that without your power, without your spirit, none of us are capable of doing anything. And I know that you choose the weak of this world to show your power, and I thank you for that, because otherwise I know we would have never been chosen. Lord, I pray that each of these people in this room will walk out of this room empowered and blessed in a way that I could never bless them, only you, the creator, the king of kings and lord of lords. Lord, let each of these people know and let them pass it on to their children, the identity that we have in you, that we can walk up on this earth with our head held high, knowing that we serve the king of kings and lord of lords, and we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ for all eternity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Thank you. We'll pray for John, too. <laughs> He's not afraid. So good. You know, it's funny. I, I was thinking about that. Um, when I was a junior in high school, I came home. We lived on Overton Park in Memphis, Tennessee, right by the Overton Park Zoo. And a uh, beautiful old house, and it was a changing neighborhood. It was gotten scarier and scarier. And um, I got home from basketball practice late. It was uh, kind of February, uh, late February. The weather wasn't bad. It was kind of changing. And um, I got home, and Mom told me she had been accosted by two men who were, uh, she was parking, she had to park the car on the street for some reason. Something was, was we had one of the kids or something, we had blocked the driveway and, and then gone. And uh, two men, real rough guys, were threatening to rape her and kill her. And we're like, what? Are you kidding me? We said, Mom, what did you do? She, she said, I looked at them, and I walked towards them, and I said, I rebuke you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I said, what they do? She said, they turned off, ran off. <laughs> so they thought you were crazy. <laughs> but I, that's all I could think of when you were talking, Missy, because like when, you, when you're walking with Jesus, you step forward. You don't step back. And uh, anyway, that's that just absolutely awesome. So I'm going to take a few minutes and finish up uh, parts of Ephesians chapter 4, which has been so great. And I want to thank you for letting me teach us. It's been refreshing for me. I do want to mention, um, some of you are looking for great, great uh, study helps for, for just for reading. I want to mention, is, uh, I wish he'd done the whole Bible. He hasn't. I don't know what he's done, but he has done Ephesians and 10 or 12 other books. He's phenomenal. And I, he was the pastor at Wheaton College Church. But what I loved about him is that his commentaries are really scholarly, and they're bottom shelf. Anybody can read them and enjoy them. He's great with illustrations. And um, I was just looking back through this. I got this thing dog-eared, and 
uh, have really used it and enjoyed it along the way. So just R. Kent Hughes, um, just thought that would be, I, I kept wanting to mention that along, along the way. So as we finish our time together, I'm very glad to be ending with a totally practical instruction. And I really, I think it's cool because what John and Missy just shared is totally relevant to everything that Paul's talking about. It's just completely, and I'm going to refer back to the persecuted church here in just a second. Um, I'm still hoping and praying that 100% of you will go to the Joshua Project and be praying through unreached people groups in the world. I'm really praying, praying that the Holy Spirit will not give you rest until you say, no, I, I want to be with the Jesus who is for all the peoples of the earth. And so be praying about that. And I hope a lot of you are going to pick, pick a, a Nigerian group. It would be cool. But Paul is so obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit as we've looked at this because the instructions he gives are utterly timeless. And they are transcultural. When you... When you you know, when I was teaching Ephesians 2 to the people in Transkai, the whole time, they're just, what, bringing two people, one, people far away, people without, you know, the whole time, they're just totally resonating because it just proves the power of the Holy Spirit speaking through the Scripture. And so later this week when you're home and you read chapters 5 and 6 on your own, maybe some of you can order Ken Hughes on Kindle and just kind of read through his little sermons on these, enjoy the fact that Paul was trying to help Christians live in unity and purpose, and that his instructions, think about this, Paul's instructions, not just in Ephesians, but in his other letters, were going to carry the church through 300 years of persecution, 10 major Roman persecutions across the world, thousands and thousands of Christians uh, killed, thousands and thousands displaced from their jobs, persecuted, devalued, and yet... The glory of Christ, as he understood and explained it so beautifully, is going to carry the church right up until the time of Constantine. And again, I'm, I'm one of the people that look at history, and I see Constantine's work, and I see it as a great catastrophe for the church. Some people don't. Some people think that was great that the church was finally recognized. I don't. I think that was the worst moment in church history, because all of a sudden, the church went from being a vital movement from house to house and from place to place, and it became a legal and represented thing, and it became something expected along the way. And as I think about that, as I think about Paul writing, think about this, particularly for those of you that are even younger. In the next 10 to 20 years, it might be that because you're a part of the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America, you might lose your job. I don't think, I don't think that's crazy anymore. I think you might... Uh, there, there's going to be less and less social value and social esteem for being part of a church. And so what Paul has written to us is going to become what? More and more relevant to our lives. And everything you read is so powerful. Even, uh, it's so interesting, Paul's instructions to women have come under great onslaught in this last century. What's interesting to me is people that are that are attacking Paul have no idea of what the situation of women was in the Roman and Greek world. What Paul was actually doing was trying to create a tightrope journey so that women and families could function in a society that had gone mad. Does it sound like any society that you're thinking of? And so this is really a powerful moment. And, and so I just want to celebrate that as you go back and you continue to live in the world. So you're going to see how relevant this is as we finish tonight. Paul says, I tell you this, verse 17, and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. 
They are darkened in their understanding. They are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. When you think of the terrorist movement in the world, when you think of oppressive governments in the world, when you think of even our own government as we uh, make decisions that affect other people in devastating ways, which we do it too, please don't, don't think America is innocent of this, that it all comes back to this downward spiral that Paul talks about, a, a spiral that he's going to call in a minute the old self. It's a progression of devastation. It's futile thinking, first of all, which he connects to this idea of darkened understanding. In other words, all your thinking, instead of bringing you to truth and goodness, brings you to hatred and despair to the point where eventually you have an automatic weapon outside of a church and you just start shooting through the open doors and the open walls. That's the end result of the rejection of the God that's been revealed through Jesus Christ, the God of love and mercy and forgiveness. Feudal thinking leads to a life where you're separated from the life of God. Like you've removed God from the equation. And if you keep God out, he says, it's going to result in ignorance and hardness of heart. I was looking this up. This is actually, I got this from Ken Hughes. The word for harden or hardness or hardening is the word porosis, P-O-R-O-S-I-S. And at the root of that word is porous. I don't know if that's related to, I don't think it's what we, what we think it might be, a porous of something that would be, be stuff leaked through it. But it would refer to a kind of stone that was harder than marble. He's like, this is what happens when you turn to your own thinking and your understanding becomes darkened and you reject the work of God. It's like your heart becomes harder than marble. And Ken Hughes added, it's an unwillingness to respond. This is exactly the same word Mark uses in chapter 3 of Mark, verses 5 and 6. Jesus is in the temple, and the man has a withered hand. And Jesus looks at the religious leaders. Remember this? He says he looked around at them in anger because he... Uh, I can't remember. What did he, anybody have their Bible? I don't have verse 4. Was this, did he ask them? No, no, I'm looking for verse 4. What was the question Jesus asked them, Lindy? No, no. Thank you. He said, what lawful to do on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? So I was having a, having a brain, brain fuzz there. And they said nothing. Because God had, the true nature of God had been re removed from the occasion. They had rejected God for religion and for religious practices. We're always tempted to do that. And so Jesus looks at them and he is angry. He's furious at this and said deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Wow, it's amazing. And so that hardness 
unchecked leads to recklessness. It's fascinating. If you go from futile thinking to separated from the life of God to hardness of heart, the next level of progression is exactly what the Pharisees had, which is a recklessness which is described as lost sensitivity. You cannot feel pain anymore. In other words, when we were watching that video tonight of the Nigerian Christian suffering, there was not a person in this room that was not just crushed in the heart to watch that. Why? Because this is not your pattern. You have not chosen a life of recklessness where you, it, the Greek word is literally to cease to feel pain. It'd be like all your nerve endings are, have died. And this recklessness involves you can't feel pain and all you can do is indulge your own unbridled lust. So you can't feel pain and they go together, by the way. They go together. Other references in the New Testament, this unbridled lust, this inability to feel pain. Because what do crazy decisions? Like, you, have you ever talked to someone and they just, they just go on the nut? They're living wild. It's what, what the whole culture is celebrating. And what they're trying to do is to stop the pain. And then they can't, they, they don't even know what to do. They're so numb and they're broken by their choices. So, Paul's going to say in just a minute, put that off. We know that. Because we know what it, we see all the pain in the world that results from it. But then he tells us a way of living out the gospel at its most elemental level. I'm, I'm hoping you'll remember, this is like living the gospel of Jesus Christ in three easy steps. Don't really believe that, but listen, verse 20. That, however, that way of hardness and devastation and the progression of destruction is not what you were taught. That's not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and you were taught in him, accordance with the truth that's in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what are the three steps? Let's, let's, just, talk, let's just do them. Put off your old self. Go ahead, repeat after me. Put off your old self. Renew your mind. Put on your new self. That's it. That is, that's the way of living the Christian journey. And it makes so much sense. In the morning, the first thing would be so great in the morning is to wake up and not put on the old self. You know? For me, one of my challenges in the morning, do I, read, do I read baseball box scores from the night before, or do I read the Moravian Bible text that comes on my email every morning at 5.04 in the morning? Box scores, scripture reading for the morning. Box scores. Come on, some of the guys could help me, or smile at least. Some of you are acting so holy and spiritual. I know what you're doing. You're grabbing your phone. You're looking at your scores. So, or whatever it is. Or your, stock, or your, or your stocks. Or your 401k. Or whatever it is. You're driving down the road. And your spouse corrects your driving. And in that moment, you either put on your old self and get chippy, you know, and get all huffy. Or you put on the new self, which is you respect that word and you consider it. 
That's, now that's ridiculous. That's, that's never going to happen. Right? <laughs> so, you know, our, even when we were dating, Paula, I would drive and she would scream. Literally every time, she would scream. My old self would be frustrated. My new self was, thank you for saving my life again for the thousandth time. So he goes on. So let's look at what this is. To put off your old self, it's, he says, with its deceitful desires. I want to talk about that. Deceitful and desires. Again, these two go together. The deceitful is a word used in the New Testament linked with, with lust or, or kind of desires, cravings. And then the word desire is a craving or a longing or a desire for what is forbidden. And I thought, why deceitful? It's deceitful because we think if we fulfill our act on the lust, it's going to be satisfying or filling. But it never is, except maybe for a moment. The deceit is, is that you have to give in to it, but it's never going to deliver on what was promised. And we all know this very well. So, I want you to just think about this. Talk about this as a spouse. Talk about, hey, what are the issues? We're going to come to some real practical issues here as we finish. What are some of the practical ways I can put off my old self? I'll give you this. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give you several here in a minute. Uh, I'll wait. I'll wait to do that. And then, secondly, the mind made nude. Renew your mind. Uh, this ananeo is to renew. It's only once in the New Testament but in other places in Greek literature, it speaks of being tr- spiritually transformed. It's actually the exact same thought as Romans 12, which I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a, prop- as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the same idea. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So this is important. Being made new or being renewed is once, it's a one-time thing when you trust Christ, and then it's a forever ongoing thing that has to keep happening all the time. Our renewal needs to be happening every minute, every hour. Uh, it's so fun to breathe out Jesus. I watched my mother do this. It drove me nuts. We would go, when I was a little kid, she'd say, hey, come on, run errands with me. And, and what errands meant is you would enter the, the uh, purgatory of shopping and, and errands for the day. And you, could, you would only get home in the late afternoon. And as a boy, it was absolute torture. But we would pull into the grocery store. We'd be in a hurry. And there'd be, there, there would be an empty parking space uh, at the front. She'd go, oh, Lord, thank you. She, just between me. She'd say, oh, Lord, thank you. You're so sweet to let us have this. And then we'd go through the checkout counter, and the checkout lady would be having a bad day. And she'd go, she'd go, you know, honey, you look, you look like, you're, like it's really been a bad day. Oh, yes, Miss Andrew's been terrible. Can I pray for you? I'm going to do that right now. And then we'd go out, and then she would, she, she would even consider a, a, a piece of clothing on sale as a gift or something divinely appointed by the Holy Spirit. So she was a little warped in her view. But my point was that every day throughout the day, every person she would meet, if she met you, she would go, oh, this is so divinely inspired that God allowed me to meet you today. What an amazing blessing. Every single human being was a divine gift from God that she got a chance to engage and talk with. Because what? Her mind was being renewed every day. And you know, you know what the mark of my mother's life was? If I could get up early enough in the morning, if, 
from the time I was a small child, I could find her reading her Bible on the two-seater blue couch in my parents' bedroom. But I'd have to get up at maybe 6 o'clock. She might still be on the couch. Maybe. But if you got up at 5.30, you'd catch her there along the way because she was renewing her mind day by day. That's why we've come to Gull Lake is to be renewed. just want to say, let God renew you. Renew the mind. Put off the old self. And part of that is by renewing your mind, letting the scripture wash over you. And then the third one is put on the new self. There's, uh, there's three just cool words that are, that are in, this, that in this section about putting on the new self. He says, um, put on the new self created to be like God in true righteous and holiness. And there are three words. First of all, he says when it says put in, it's this word indio, which means to to like just sink into your clothes which I love that idea because my idea of a, a nice pair of clothes is one that you that doesn't touch you and you can't feel it like that's that's the fashion sense that the world should adopt that so you, it's like you're not wearing anything that would be the dream people that wear tight clothes blow my mind I, I don't understand that sink into you're this new self that's been created by God in righteousness and holiness. The other word is this new self, the word new, means recently made. It means unused and unworn. In other words, God has made us new and unused and unworn. Think about he's writing. He's writing this to a group of Christians. Many of them are converted prostitutes. Many of them are you know, people of influence in Ephesus along the way. Many of them are Jewish Christians who are in diaspora, have been scattered around the world. They are new. We are new in Christ. Put on the new person that is you. And part of that is don't believe the lies about fear anymore. Don't believe the lies that are that are come to your mind. Um, someone that we love very, very much just had a rough week. And this person during this rough week, kind of the circumstances of their life, just said, you know what? Just feel like my life's worthless. What is that? That's that's Satan's lie. What, your life is worthless? Jesus Christ died on the cross for you? Your life is worthless? Are you crazy? That, that's good counseling technique. Um, <laughs> put on your new self. You're being offered the life of God. That's why when you get to later, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, he says, do what? Put on. What? What? Put on the full armor of God. Put on, sink into these new clothes. The shield of faith, you know, the helmet of salvation, the shoes of the, God, the gospel of peace. All, you know, the sword of the spirit. In other words, sink into it, man. Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. and Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. What are the devil's schemes? They're lies. They're all lies. He has nothing but negative power. He's got nothing but lies to offer us. And just think if Missy and John would have listened to the lies about going to Nigeria. Just think if you listen to the lies, if it keeps you from doing what God's calling you to do. Don't listen to it. I didn't put this, I didn't give this to Polar, but... Uh, we will be has not yet been made. Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and all who have purify themselves. I just want to say when you put on the new self, John is saying the new self you, 
you don't even have any idea of what we're going to be like. We're going to be like him. And we, you have no idea what that's going to be like. This is going to be so unbelievable, so unimaginable. And this new self we're putting on now, we're only getting a slight glimmer of what it is that we're really going to be. That's why I love, it's probably my favorite sermon of my lifetime, C.S. Lewis's sermon, The Weight of Glory, that he preached during World War II on BBC Radio, where he described the glory of what we will be in Christ. It's amazing. So, as for being made new, then Paul, and I'm going to do this real fast because I'll let you, you work on this later. Paul lays out like six or seven huge derailers that will stop our growth and effectiveness at putting off the old, renewing our minds, and putting on the new man. And I want you, uh, this is, you have permission, if you're, if you're a married couple here tonight, you have, in the next seven minutes, you have permission to elbow your spouse twice. Okay? It's a limit, like the limit is two. If you, if you elbow them more than twice, then that's a foul. <laughs> Jesus is not pleased. But there are these derailers, and I want you to just gently elbow your spouse if you think this is one they need to think about. Probably shouldn't do this, should I? Because every time we fall into old patterns or cry out to God, listen to the nudge of the Spirit, and let's start feeding our hearts and minds with the Word of God so we can see real change. So look at these. You know yourself, you know your spouse, and maybe you nudge your spouse and go, this is the one I need to work on. Okay, here they are. Here are the derailers going to keep us uh, from experiencing full life in Christ and in the body of Christ and, and keep us off mission. Number one is, we, we, and I'm, put, I'm trying to put them in the positive. The first one is to speak truth. Speak truth. Verse 25, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. As for we are all members of one body. He is saying, put off. This is exactly the same phrase when he said, put off the old man. Just back in verse 22. Apotithemi. Put off the old, the old person, the old self. Put on the new. It's to put off, speaking falsehood is the old self. So just stop doing it. Stop telling the lies. Stop withholding information if you're afraid it's going to keep you from looking bad. Or look, keep, keep you from looking good. Speaking truth is so key that lying to your neighbor is lying to yourself. We are one. He says we're members of one body. When we lie, it's like we drive a dagger into the health of the body of Christ, of his church. So speak truth. Think about, is there an area where you need to speak more truth? Don't speak it as a bludgeon, but, but tell the truth. Secondly, resolve anger. This is really good to know. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and don't give the devil a foothold. This word anger is orgidzo. You recognize the root of that. This is like to go crazy. Paul's saying, you're going to go orgidzo. You're going to go nuts. You're going to get angry. You're going to be furious at times. Don't let it control you. Don't let it stay with you. Don't give the devil a foothold. Paul is saying you're going to be angry enough to hate and kill, but don't do it. Resolve it. Don't let it linger and don't spew it out hurtfully. Anger is Satan's foothold in your life and relationships. Now, I just want to say this, especially to men. Don't t take this to too extreme. So if sunset is five minutes away and you and your spouse are angry at each other, don't take this literally. Don't, 
don't think I've got to resolve this in the next five minutes. In early years in our marriage, this is the honest truth. Paul and I would have arguments all the time about money and about decisions. About You know, I was trying to squeeze her into my mold, and she's not very compliant. And, uh, you know, because I'm married. And when I look back on it later years, every place she disagreed with me was a safeguard for my life. But I thought you weren't supposed to let the sun go down in the anger. So she'd get mad and leave the room, and I'd follow her, you know. She'd go into the sewing room, you know. She'd, she'd walk into the bedroom, and, you know, our house was only like 900 square feet. So she didn't have very far to go. And then finally, I, I, it wasn't the first time, but it was probably the 10th or 20th time we'd had a fight. She goes, would you just give me a break for a minute? <laughs> like, let me go into this room, and let me just catch some perspective. Like, no, no, you got to resolve with it. No, no, don't take this literally. But in other words, don't let anger fester. But I will say this, when you're both really, really angry at each other, taking a time out is a great idea for an hour or a couple hours. That's a great thing to do. But don't take a time out for days or weeks at a time. The third one, which is the opposite of stealing, is meaningful work. And by the way, when you think of justice issues in the world, this is a tremendous problem. Meaningful work has become the hardest thing in the world for people to get globally. This is a tremendous problem among every tribal group that I'm a part of in Africa, creating jobs, isn't it, John? It's just a terrible problem. And so meaningful work is such a gift from God, but saying, and I don't think this is going to be an issue for you people in this room at all, but I'm just, it, it's part of it, is that if you've been stealing, steal no longer, but work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. I just want to remind you, there's two reasons for meaningful work. Work in its own right, just to be useful, to do good, to make good things, to do what Jeremiah 29, where Jeremiah tells the people of Israel in exile in Babylon, he says, work for the good of the city. But the second one is work to be generous. I've talked to a lot about my dad. One of my great admirations for him was his generosity. And he did something cool. Dads, think about this. I don't know how you do this in, in modern terms. But dad had a, a, one of, he, was a, he was a medical doctor, and once a month he'd come in and write checks in his office off of their bedroom. And he had one of the old, you guys remember these? Huge ledgers, checks were about this big. And he would write them. And I came in there, I was five or six years old. I said, Dad, what are you doing? He said, I'm writing checks. And I said, can I, can I watch you write checks? He says, sure. He brings me up, puts me on his lap. He starts writing checks. And, he, and I saw him do this dozens of times. First check went to First Evangelical Church. I said, Dad, what are you doing? He says, this is, this is the tithe. This is 10% of our gross income this month. This is how much I made. This is the mon money I deposited from my medical practice. Here's 10%. Second check, I remember. Young Life, Memphis. Dad was saved in a, in a meeting with Jim Rayburn. Remember, I told you that, Young Life. And the third one would be, was the Memphis Rescue Mission. And then, so the first eight to ten checks he wrote were all, all the first checks he wrote were generosity. And over the years, I realized that there were years, several, multiple years, where Dad gave away 50% of his gross income. We, we, he was, we, were, he, we were not wealthy people. He was a very successful doctor. But even as he retired later and was invested, he really didn't put enough, he really didn't leave enough aside. But you know what? No regrets because the world is a different place because he lived and followed Christ, he and my mom. And you know what? Because of his generosity and his work, he had the ability to be generous also with his love for Christ. 
it was interesting, because he was an outspoken evangelical Christian in Memphis, Tennessee, every church in Tennessee, Mississippi, and Arkansas, a lot of black churches as well, white churches, Orthodox, Catholic, would invite him to come and teach the Bible and tell his story. When the biggest Greek Orthodox church in Tennessee was dedicated about 40 years ago, he was the keynote speaker at the Greek Orthodox Church in Memphis because he had learned that you can't outgive God and meaningful work leads to meaningful opportunity. So just think about, maybe think about how do I take my work and the work that I'm doing good and how do I expand that in terms of youthfulness to, to the world and to the kingdom of God and to people and also for generosity. The next one, speak life. Has anybody elbowed a spouse yet or acknowledged one of these? Here's the next one, speak life. He says, verse 29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. You know what this word unwholesome is? It's the word sapros, which means rotten or putrefied. It's no longer fit for quality. By the way, as I was looking at this, this is one of the, I was double elbowing myself. Ask each other and ask yourself, what words do I speak that are hurtful or rotten? Because this is something that we can help each other see. Some of you may think that Paul's writing about swear words here. I don't think so. I don't think that's even a big concern. You know what I think he's concerned about? Gossip. Sarcasm. Criticism. The, the styles of speaking that really destroy people. The belittling of people. We, we've gotten stuck in the, in, in the evangelical world I grew up. We were stuck on words like hell and damn. We should have been stuck on words like, hey, did you hear? Or, yeah, I, you know, I just don't think that dress looks good on you. I grew up in the South. I heard that. Oh, my gosh. Horrible. So think about the words. Are you speaking life? Um, the next one is sync with the Holy Spirit. Sync with the Holy Spirit. It says, verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Literally, this literally means don't make the Holy Spirit sad. And I thought of Paul saying, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit is in you, whom you've received from God. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. In other words, live in sync. Every part of us to say, God, I want my body to be yours. I want my thought life. I want my free time to be yours. I want my conversations with other people to be fully yours. I want to be in sync with you in everything I'm doing. And, I, and, and as you do this, you're going to realize there's so many times you're not in sync. Well, I'm not. I just, you know, I come to the end of the day and I was like, oh, gosh, what did I do this time? You know, uh, did anybody else do that? Or am I, I'm the only one. Okay, whatever. But God has inseparably connected himself to us. And it's so sad when we choose to live as if he's not there or as if he's dead. He is alive in us. Okay, two more. Absence of malice. Absence of malice. Verse 31 says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. A lot of you know now that my passion is starting new churches here and around the globe. In all these years I've been doing this, there's only one quality I found that 100% of the time, the time destroys the effectiveness of a new leader. You know what it is? It's malice and bitterness. It's people that hold grudges. If, I, if I'm interviewing somebody and I realize that they have a grudge against somebody else, I have learned 
that no matter how much I want them to succeed, they are going to fail. Isn't that interesting? I mean, they could be, have a loose tongue, they could be undisciplined, they could be a, you know, a loose cannon, whatever it is. But the one thing that destroys, like if you want to start an effective ministry to something God's calling you, but you have unresolved bitterness to other people in your life, that is going to ultimately poison everybody else. In fact, let me see if I can find this. I had it earlier. Almost done. Ken Hughes had this in, uh, yeah, I think I can find it. Maybe I lied. No, here it is. Oh, shoot. Where was that? (laughs) Oh, okay, here it is. This is from um, Frederick Frederick Bigner. Who's great? Anybody ever read Bigner? Frederick Bigner? Anybody? Raise your hand. Couple? Really cool. Great, great thinker. I don't always agree with everything he says, but he's very stimulating. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger, bitterness is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself, and the skeleton at the feast is you. And so I just want to encourage you, if you have bitterness towards your spouse or towards your kids or to whatever, a person who carries bitterness is going to poison everything they touch. You cannot help it. And if you carry malice towards your spouse, your kids will drink the poison. And I'm talking whether you're married or divorced, doesn't matter. You let the malice go. Absence of malice is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can do that. Again, I don't, and I don't care how bad you've been hurt. Even those Christians in Nigeria who've been killed, to forgive the rebels that did it, it's the only way to life and hope. The last one is this, to extend forgiveness extended. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And I think I knew this, but I, I understood it today as I was finishing this talk. These are the most contagious and attractive qualities in the world. Kindness, compassion, forgiveness. Nothing, nothing like those, is there? Particularly when you're in the wrong. And people are won over when they experience them. But it says, when he says to forgive, the word is charizomai, which is from the root word grace. Remember, Jesus ascended and he took the captives with, with us. He took us with him and he gave gifts to men. He gave grace gifts to men. He gave charis gifts to men. He's saying, when you forgive, you're giving grace. That's what forgiveness means, literally. You're giving grace to the other person. You're giving a grace gift, just like Jesus gave them to us. We are, when we do this, there's nothing we could do more that would allow us to participate in our true identity as sons and daughters of God. So, let me, just be honest with me. Of those seven, how many of you had at least one that poked you a little bit? Just kind of see a show of hands? Okay, good. That means we're listening to the Holy Spirit because those, Paul's saying those are big deals. If you're going to be Jesus' effective instrument in the world, you've got to deal with those and face those. And so as, as a couple tonight or as a family, talk about these and talk about how these need to be 
let go. Because we all know that if we don't, then the poison is going to kill us uh, and stop us from being effective for the Lord. So I'm done. Uh, I'm I'm three minutes over. Sorry. Can I say one more thing? I want to say that um, you can probably tell I don't do this a lot. I am a, I'm, a, I'm a local church pastor, and I don't do conferences. The only conferences that I've done in the last 10 years, uh, I've did four where I spoke at. Um, uh, one is in Brazil, and the other three are at Gull Lake. <coughs> I did the Christian camping group, and I spoke. And so when I'm talking to you, I'm, I'm, I've, everything I've said to you, I've just said from the context of I'm living in a local context with people I, I drive a 16-year-old car. I'm, I'm just following Christ like everybody else, and I'm trying to say, how does the Word of God soak into my life for me to live the way that God's called me to live? Because as I'm with you, I realize that's every person in the room. You just, you just want Jesus to be alive in you, and he is. And so go back and, and, and even, again, get a, vi- a bigger vision for the church as you look at the book of Ephesians. Again, we didn't get to chapter 5 and 6. I knew, I knew it was too much for, you know, for me to, to work through, but it's still so exciting, and I hope, you'll, I hope it'll revel the things were said, that the Holy Spirit will bring back the things to mind that you need to know. So let me just pray for you. Father, thank you for this beautiful, phenomenal group of people. Uh, best day ever. Best group ever. That's how it feels. And just be at work in them, and for the things where they need to step out courageously in the next few weeks and months and in this, as fall comes and they're back home and they're working and stuff with their kids, that you would give them the absolute courage and fearlessness that John and Missy modeled for us this week. And we pray for them. And Lord, we just know that you have great plans. And we, we go back to earlier in Ephesians that you are able to do more than we could ask or imagine. And not just certainly for our own personal lives, but for your kingdom, your kingdom to grow, the kingdom of, to expand, the name of Jesus to be glorified and exalted in the world through us. You, you've given us the incredible privilege of being a part of that amazing wave. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Amen. Thanks, Steve. <laughs>